there's nothing that could take you away from that state of enlightenment and there's nothing that could enhance it or lessen it because it is all, it is everything. I am Serena Dyer and you are listening to the Lifestylist Podcast. We are back in the saddle again, guys. It's episode The Knowing, Lessons Learned When Wayne Dyer's Your Dad with Serena dyer Pisoni. Know that you can find the show notes for this episode at lukestory.com slash Serena. Now, to millions of readers around the world, including myself, Dr. Wayne Dyer was the beloved father of motivation. But to our guests Serena, Sage, and their six siblings, he was simply dad. When he died suddenly in 2015, the sisters were blindsided by grief and felt totally unprepared to navigate life's challenges and conflicts without his guidance. This experience launched them on an adventure from loss to understanding as they came to realize and metabolize their father's teachings with a new urgency, intimacy, and the power as they applied them to their lives. As their journey unfolded, they realized their father's wisdom, the knowing, was embedded in their DNA, as it of course is for all of us. In their book, The Knowing, Serena and Sage share how they recommitted to the teachings of their father and in doing so, created their own evolution of his principles that they teach today. They share the 11 lessons that crack them open and spark their own spiritual journey, which is the basis of this incredible conversation. Here are a few other topics we explore in this chat. How I used to listen to her dad's tapes constantly and how impactful they were, especially in the beginning of my journey. Her dad and my shared appreciation of the Indian guru Muktananda. Her experience of Ram Das and his relationship with Wayne. How she coped with her dad's death in 2015. Wayne's experience with the controversial Brazilian healer, John of God, the sense Serena had that her dad knew he was going to leave his body, the true definition of coincidence, and then one of my favorite parts of this conversation was when Serena and I broke down some of our favorite quotes from her dad, such as, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change, and we don't get what we want, we become what we want, and many more. Why Wayne was so into the synchronicity of numbers? The amazing story of how her dad found his father's grave, what it was like to be one of eight kids in a spiritual household, what she finds so valuable about meditation and how it helped her get pregnant, tools she uses to overcome anger and resentment, how she coped with the death of her stepson, and finally, Serena shares with us the work she does with endchildtrafficking.org. This is a really inspiring conversation. I think right now... (laughs) Humankind is going through a major portal of evolution and growth, and uh, I think conversations like this are going to be very supportive to all of us, myself included. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Beekeepers Naturals, Eaton Hemp, and Blue Blocks. You'll learn more about them later. If you find this episode inspiring, please, as always, share with a friend or someone that you love. And with that, I will introduce to you Serena dyer Pisoni. Welcome to the show, Serena. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad that you reached out and were able to put this together. Yeah, I'm so glad that you responded. (laughs) Yeah, no, I immediately did. I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. Thank you. Yeah, uh, as we were discussing prior to recording, you already knew that I was such a huge fan of your dad, uh, Wayne Dyer. I've talked about him a lot on the show. When I first started the awakening process when I was around 26, 
Uh, I used to have a bunch of his big cassette. They're like these, I don't, they don't even have them anymore. I mean, obviously they don't have cassettes anymore, right. but they were these cassette booklets. Right. Uh, there weren't audio books. Some maybe were audio books. Some were just talks, like collections of lectures. Right. And uh, he was and is one of my favorites. And I loved his ability to put esoteric teachings like the Tao Te Ching and other teachings in very practical everyday terms that a, right. a, a numb skull like me could understand <laughs> and actually apply to their life. So yeah, when he reached out, I was like, oh, this will be interesting. And then I listened to and read your book and it's absolutely fantastic. Thank so you. I'm stoked to um, to chat with you about so many things. Well, thank you. Uh, so the book is called The Knowing, 11 Lessons to Understand the Quiet Urges of Your Soul. So the first thing I want to ask you is, what is the knowing? The knowing is um, the part of us that is God, to put it in the most simple terms. But to expand a little bit on that, because it sounds a little uh, woo-woo, there is a part of every single one of us that has um, infinite knowledge, awareness, connection to all things. And you might think that that is not present in the people that you don't like or in the people that aren't living their their highest from their highest selves, but it is. It's present in all of us. And the knowing is connecting to that and paying attention to it. It's kind of like having a lighthouse. Um, it's always there. It will guide you home, even in the darkest of nights, the most awful storms. But you have to open your eyes. You have to look for it. And, um, and I would say that the knowing is like an intuition, but bigger than that because it's, it's God. Wow, thank you. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. Because as, as you're saying that, I'm like, Oh, so it's like intuition, but the knowing is, I guess, more broad mm-hmm. than just intuition because it's it's the recognition that one is an aspect of God mm-hmm. rather than just the intuition of knowing like, hmm, I think I should go this way or that way. Right, because intuition is a little bit more, um, I think, mind-based. It can obviously be soul-based, gut level, but I think intuition... Um, isn't always the awareness that something bigger than us is at play here. And I think that's yeah. what the knowing really is. Awesome. I love it. Okay. <laughs> so there's something really interesting that I learned about your dad that I didn't know that his book, Your Erogenous Zones, was based on the teachings of Muktananda. Were you aware of that? No, not, I mean, not as a kid, yeah. uh, as I got older, but, um, so it's actually your erroneous zones. Oh, yeah. erroneous zones. Yeah. Okay. Erogenous sounds like. Did maybe. I say erogenous? Yeah. That's so funny because I have erroneous zones written here. Shows where my mind's yeah, at. Yeah, er- erogenous might be in like a different <laughs> section of the bookstore. <laughs> your um, your erroneous zones, like zones, the places yeah. in which you are incorrect. Yeah, um, yeah. and that was his first book actually, and that book came about for him um, after an incredible experience that we talk about in the book, but we're basically. He, he grew up without a father and his father had abandoned him when he was born. His mother had three little boys. He was the youngest of three. And um, his father walked out and his mother could not afford to keep the three boys together. So my dad and his brothers were placed in um, foster homes or orphanages. And uh, this was 1940. It's the height of the Great Depression. It was not an uncommon thing at that time. But anyway, because of that, my dad grew up hating his father. He grew up full of anger and, um, and he wanted to get revenge because he didn't understand how a man could leave his children. And he spent 35 years of his life um, full of anger 
And when he found out that his father died, he, uh, he went to his grave to piss on it, literally. That's why he went there. And, um, and he got to the grave and he, he did. He did all those things. He cursed him, stomped on it, maybe took a leak on it. Um, and then he left to go back to his rental car. And as he was walking back to his rental car, his knowing, his, his presence of God said to him, go back now, go back to the grave. And he did. And he went back to the grave and he said, from this moment on, I only send you love and I forgive you. And he wrote erroneous owns within two weeks of that. Really? Of that, yeah. Wow. He had a tenured professorship in New York at um, St. John's University. He quit. Uh, he left a relationship he wasn't happy in. He started to lose weight. He started to exercise. And that book, Your Erroneous Zones, went on to become the number one bestseller of the entire decade of the 70s. But all of that happened, all of that, um, because of a moment of forgiveness. And I wouldn't be here if he didn't do that because he ended up meeting my mom after that. And anyway, my dad used to say that the single greatest, most important day of his life was August 30th, 1976, when he found his father's grave and forgave him. And you can imagine um, our surprise when my sister Sage, my co-author, discovered that August 30th, the most important day of our dad's life, um, the day his relationship with his father forever changed. It was also the day he died, August 30th, 2015. So, I mean, the signs are there. <laughs> you know, there's, 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 uh, that's one of the things I love about the book that you two wrote is there's just, I mean, I'm a believer, right? So I live in a world of synchronicities and it's commonplace and I do my best to um, be aware of them and to, and to celebrate them. Mm -hmm. But I know for many people, it's difficult to grasp that the universe is so interconnected. And I love in the book how there's just so many of those examples. I mean, it's the knowing, right? right. So it's like, you're like, well, what is the knowing? It's all in the book. And I, I think that one was one of the ones that got me. And I'm not going to say this is so synchronistic, but my dad's birthday is August 31st. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I mean, you know, like, that's like when you meet someone is. and- they're like, I was born in April. You're like, me too. You know, it's like, well, it's not that big of a coincidence, but that is is profound. Um, yeah. And I had one of those actually yesterday where I did stop and just like my eyes filled with tears because it was such a sign. I was reading your book and you quoted Ram Das as saying, I am loving awareness. Mm-hmm. And before I picked up the book to start reading and studying for this interview, I put on a playlist that my friend Ryan gave me of just kind of medicine journey music, just trippy music that you would listen to on medicine. And I, I love that kind of music, <laughs> even not on medicine. Uh, and I'm playing it and there's this like instrumental track and it's Ram Dass's voice. And right in the sentence that says, I am loving awareness, he starts repeating, I am loving awareness. I am loving awareness at the exact same time. Oh my God, yeah. I love it. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. like, come on, right, you know right. what I mean? And and the reason that is happening for you and the reason that you are um, having those things and that I have those things is because I expect them. And the reason other people that are, maybe let's say you said skeptical or non-believers don't is because they don't. And they don't expect them. So they're not looking for them. They're not open to them. And I think that... Um, the choice is ours. You know, which one, 
Which way do we want to go through life as though everything's a miracle or, or as though nothing is? But speaking of Ramdas, I don't know why this story just popped into my head. So I want to tell you, but I don't know. I don't want to go off your paper. Well, no, my paper is meaningless okay. because it's linear. So do, because I was going to ask you about like your, Ram Das is another one of my favorite teachers. And I was going to ask you about any interactions you had with him or oh, good. the nature of your dad's relationship. But, but I want to pause that because I do want to go back to your dad's experience of going to his father's grave, but the precursor to that of how he got there, mm-hmm. which you describe in the book, which is in itself miraculous and full of signs. Yeah. Yeah. He was happened to be in um, uh, Miss, Mississippi. Biloxi, Mississippi. Yeah, yeah. In Mississippi for a work conference. Um, and he just happened to be there and he was looking for, um, he wasn't looking for his father's grave in, in Biloxi because he didn't know where... Let me say that again. He didn't know where his father was buried exactly. He knew that it was around that area of Biloxi, but he didn't know exactly where. But he had found out through like a cousin that um, that he was buried near there. And he um, he got in his rental car, brand new rental car, still had like the, the plastic on the floor. And in the cup holder of the rental car in the center console was one um, business card. And the business card was for a motel. And it was called the Candlelight Inn. And on the back of the business card was just a little image of a map of where that was. The only thing he knew about his father's grave was that it was buried sort of near the Candlelight Inn. Um, Or that it was near a motel, actually. That's what it is. It was that it was near a motel in the middle of this part of, of Biloxi. And he called all of these different motels to see if they had a pauper's grave. Because his father, when he died, he died um, of cirrhosis of the liver at 49. He was an alcoholic. And he wasn't, he wasn't buried with a headstone. So he didn't know. It's not like there was like a location. You know what I mean? It's not like how today you would know exactly where somebody was. But anyway, he, it was just through a series of crazy coincidences that the business card that happened to be in the brand new rental car had the name of an inn. And when he called that inn, he found out that his father was, in fact, buried at the pauper's grave in the backyard of that inn, drove there. Um, it, it was just one of those things where when you're paying attention, the guidance is there. It's always there, but you have to look for it. He could have easily discarded that business card. Um, he could have easily thought, um, I'll never find his grave. It's written down on some church paper in some church basement somewhere in a state I've never been to before, but he didn't. He looked for it and he found it and um, he was being guided the whole way. Had he not spent some time earlier in life looking for his dad too? Always. Okay. Always looking for his okay, dad. Okay, yeah. Yeah. He wanted to confront him. He wanted to know how he could um, how he could have abandoned him and how he could have abandoned his mother and his brothers. And he was carrying around anger, just pure anger um, up, until, up until he found the grave. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to skip ahead. Thank okay. you for sharing that. I'm going to yeah. skip ahead to, to Ram Dass. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know why this popped into my head. I must have known Ram Dass is probably here right now. And I must have known that you were going to ask me about Ram Dass. And that's why this popped into my head. But um, when I was younger, um, you know, Ram Dass lived in Maui for the last, I don't know how many years of his life. And, um, and because my dad lived on Maui and we would spend every summer and a lot of the winter time there, um, I spent a lot of time with Ram Dass and he, um, he had had a stroke 
So he was in a wheelchair. He spoke very slowly. And so when you, when he spoke, you listened. I mean, he already could get you on the edge of his, on the edge of your seat just by his presence alone. But um, he was just like a silly big kid, really. It's just always laughing, always just sitting there cracking up over God knows what. But anyway, um, he told us this story about how when he had been fired from Harvard for developing LSD. Um, he went to India and he went to India to study with his guru, with um, Neem Karoli Baba. And he had brought with him a bunch of LSD tablets and he had them in his pocket. And, um, and he was in a circle meditating with his guru and a bunch of other people. And uh, his guru looked at him and said, and he didn't tell anybody he brought the LSD. And uh, his guru looked at him and said, what's in your pocket? And he said, like, oh, it's nothing. And he said, give me one. And he said, like, no, 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 you can't. I, I don't want to give you one of these. He said, give me one. He said, okay, I just said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm nervous to give this to you, but he hands it to him. He takes it. Um, nothing happens. His guru sits there and nothing happens. About an hour goes by and he looks at Ram Das and he says, give me all of them. And Ramdas says, I, it will kill you. I'll kill you. I can't do that. And he says, give me all of them. <laughs> so he takes out all of the LSD tablets from his pocket and he gives them to his guru. And uh, he takes all of them. And an hour goes by and nothing happens. And he looks at him and he says, when you're already in Detroit, you don't have to take a train to get there. And because I know your story, your experience, um, I guess that just popped into my head because it's so indicative of what we're all searching for, whether we're searching for it through pills or alcohol or drugs or Ramdas was searching for that nirvana um, and he was uh, accomplishing it through his LSD. But when you are enlightened, there's nothing that could take you away from that state of enlightenment and there's nothing that could enhance it or lessen it because it is all it is everything. If you're enjoying this episode of the podcast, you should know that it would not be possible without support from our friends over at Beekeepers Naturals. Now, when I sat down to cut this run of 2021 ads, I thought, which one do I want to start with? And it immediately came to mind that I use the Propolis Throat Spray more often than any of their other amazing products, as delicious and useful as they are. I always travel with the Throat Spray. I use it on airplanes, anywhere I'm going to be around other people's funk, when the air is dirty and germy. And I also keep it by my bedside to use first thing in the morning when I wake up, especially in dry climates where I get a little bit of a sore throat, or if I'm just feeling like a twinge of a cold or something like that possibly coming on. The propolis throat spray is not only a powerful natural medicine, but it also tastes delicious. It's kind of like a mild honey flavor. In fact, it's so delicious that my fiance Allison saw me using this stuff so often that eventually she jacked a bottle of it for herself because there's a few around the house. She's free to do so, of course. And now she's on board with it and she travels with it as well. So it is a family favorite. These little bee creatures make some incredible stuff, and bee propolis is one of my favorites. It delivers natural germ-fighting properties and antioxidants 
to help protect our bodies. It's also sustainably sourced, and this spray is made with just three simple ingredients. So you're never going to find any refined sugars, dyes, dirty chemical, none of that swag ever. So if you're ready to check out the Beekeepers Naturals Propolis Throat Spray, here's what you do. Go to beekeepersnaturals.com slash lukestory. That's beekeepersnaturals.com slash lukestory. The spelling is B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S. Beekeepersnaturals.com slash lukestory. And if you use that link which of course is also easily clickable in the show notes for this episode, you're going to save yourself 15% off. I'm familiar with, with that story mm -hmm. and it's always been uh, one that's been very impactful for me Yeah, because of the reasons you just described. Mm -hmm. um, yet I have still been drawn out of curiosity and also just, subjective benefit mm -hmm. to those experiences over the past couple of years as well. But even when I am, I'm always reminded that it's like, say you do breath work or you do meditation or you do plant medicines. It seems like the thing you're doing is taking you to that place, mm -hmm. but you're actually the one who's doing it, right? It's like right. the higher state of consciousness is within you. Right. It's just that there are different tools that one can use mm -hmm. that help you to realize that you are Neem Karoli Baba, right? right? right. You right. Know? And that place yeah. is already, it's already there. Yeah. But like, you know, for most of us, you got to swim through all the shit to find it. And yeah. And my dad liked ayahuasca and he was like, you know, super into that. And um, my sister Summer did it in Costa Rica not that long ago after he died. And she said that, she was having this incredible ayahuasca experience. And then all of a sudden my dad was there and she said, dad, what are you doing here? And he goes, what am I doing here? What are you doing here? <laughs> she was like, Hey dad. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. And I was like, Oh God, now I, I really want to do um, some of the different things to help me get yeah. to that place of connection, higher consciousness faster, because sure it exists in all of us and it's available to all of us, but it takes a lot of, discipline to find it it and, does it does yeah. yeah i didn't know that about your dad that he had done ayahuasca that's interesting yeah, a bunch of times really yeah wow mm -hmm. wow i mean it makes sense you know yeah. um do you remember anything else about uh, your dad and ramdas's relationship or ways in which ramdas's teachings influenced him or you know what 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 was the nature of their relationship so um the nature of their relationship so they re they knew each other from back in the day, but they reconnected once Ramdas moved to Maui. Um, he was staying at a an Indian man who owned a home in um, in Maui, and he had said to Ramdas that he could live there for free for the rest of his life. This beautiful home up in the mountains overlooking the ocean. But Ramdas had donated every single dollar that he had ever earned from any of his books, from any of his speaking. He gave all of them away. So. Um, he was living in his house for free, but he still had expenses. So my dad um, and him reconnected because my dad was helping financially support him because he would never keep a dollar for himself. Wow. Yeah. And so wow. um, so they, they ended up spending a lot of time together because um, my dad would go up there to visit him. And then he would come to our condo sometimes um, with uh, Kathleen, who was his aide at the time. And uh, I would make food. I, I would cook dinner and I would make 
food that, a, you know, a teenage girl would make, like pasta and chicken, you know. And I remember one time Kathleen said, um, don't don't put any Parmesan cheese on, on Ram Dass's. And he was behind her going, <laughs> and I was like, you want more? And he was like, <laughs> and I remember thinking like, you don't eat like vegan or, and he just was, he was like a big kid in that way. And yeah. um, my dad was too. Yeah. They were both really joyful, really um, present and silly and joyful. And Ramdas always had this energy about him. Like he was in awe, like in awe over everything. And wow. it always felt to me like he was in on a joke or in on a prank that I didn't really know what was going on, but he was always on the verge of laughing. Um, always. Wow. And I remember one time when we got to his house, um, he had this altar and I said to him, uh, why do you have uh, a picture of George Bush and Rush Limbaugh? on your altar, like <laughs> along with all of Wow, that's a stretch. All of these gurus <laughs> and um and and sacred images of, you know, different saints and, and people. And um he said because they have just as much God in them as the other people up there. And I have to remember that. Wow. Yeah. Damn. That's potent. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to be able to um, love those that you agree with, to be kind to those that are kind to us, is easy. It's it takes real mastery to be able to love those you disagree with, um, and to be kind to those who are not kind. But as the Tao says, the sage is kind to the kind and kind to the unkind. This kindness is his nature. Mm. So. Ramdas was um, just a living example of of putting that to work, putting that idea to work, and holding himself accountable to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine you're sitting there praying and you see a you know war criminal in front of your face. I mean, George <laughs> Bush, pretty pretty bad actor in my you know in my opinion. There are worse figures in history, of course, that you could put up there that come to mind for many people. But it's the same idea, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that helps me find peace with the way the world is and those that I deem to be evil or uh, to a lesser degree even just disagree with is mm -hmm. that duality is here on purpose, mm -hmm. right? That if the world was perfect in this utopia, there'd be no reason to have a world because there would be no reason to incarnate because there'd be no sort of uh, contrast of a scale of consciousness for us to use for our growth, right? So Right, exactly. And I think that that is the thing that people so often uh, misunderstand. Uh, people in like spiritual or mindfulness communities, they think that like, you know, there's this idea that like karma or bad things happen to good people or, you know, people get really into putting a label on an action or an experience as like good or bad or looking at a person and saying that they are good or bad. But really, we come here, we incarnate here, at least it's my belief that we do so to grow, to expand. And so those people and those experiences that, that we label as bad or that are challenging are really stepping stones for our own growth. And they're really 
ladders, if you will, for us to climb to get out of our own our own suffering, our own lower energy. So their experience is theirs. And whether they're good or bad has nothing to do with us. But if we can find the way to do what Ramdas did, if we can find the way to have that love for them, um, then they have become our teacher. They have become our opportunity for growth. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Well, I say that because I had such a difficult time as I wrote about in, in our book for like five years, I had everything in my life just like went bad. And I kept thinking because I was raised in a spiritual household where, you know, my dad used to say the secret got it wrong. You don't get in life what you want. You get what you are, that, that the universe is responding to you. And all of these things that kept happening to me um, were difficult and I was really struggling. But on top of that, I had like compounded shame because if you are raised to believe that you get in life what you are, then why was I getting all of these bad things? I must be bad. And that's what I was thinking. And that's how I was viewing it. And therefore, I was staying really stuck. And I was really in the struggle. And the shame was overpowering. Um, but it was through understanding and realizing that I'm placing a label on it, calling something bad. But if I change the way I look at it, um, the experience itself will change. And I have a choice to make it um, an opportunity to grow and to expand or to stay stuck. And whichever one I choose will be the outcome that I experience for the rest of my life. So do I want to stay stuck or do I want to grow? I want to talk about something that could be potentially a little controversial. Oh, well, let me take a sip of my tea. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure, I'm sure you can get around it. Uh, so your dad passed in 2015. Mm -hmm. And prior to that, he had a bout with, and tell me if I'm getting this right, he had a bout with leukemia. Mm -hmm. And then by the time he had died, Mm -hmm. He was said to have not had leukemia. Is that right? Yes. During that time, uh, you, I think, went with him to see John of God. I was with him on Maui when he had a John of God remote. Ah, uh, okay, remote okay. So you didn't go with surgery. Him. Okay. No, we never went to Brazil. And the reason that I say, and he didn't go either. No. Oh, okay. So the reason I say it's controversial for those that aren't listening, there, there's been a bunch of controversy around sexual misconduct mm -hmm. of John of God, and like it's super sketchy. Mm -hmm. Like so many of the now, there's Yogi Bhajan, the guy that is said to have brought Kundalini Yoga here, which is a practice that I've benefited from much. And it's, it's a shame, you know, you don't know which allegations are true, of course, in these situations until they're proven. So, but when there are so many from so many yeah. different people, you're kind of like, okay, I'm going to just like exit out of that energy field. Um, right. So I, you know, I don't know that it's controversial in the context of your dad, but I guess on the positive side of that, what was his experience of working with John of God and how did you perceive that from your point of view and that whole period uh, in which he seemed to have been healed, uh, at least in part by that transmission? Yeah. So let me just say that um, I'm familiar with the sexual assault allegations or misconduct allegations against John of God. Um, that being said, I have never made John of God a guru and I would not guru-fy him or anyone else because I understand that they are human beings and um, I think that people can have incredible gifts and also be deeply flawed. 
So I'm just going to say that about him. Yeah, and, yeah. And um, I believe that John of God absolutely has an incredible gift, despite being deeply flawed, if, if the allegations are true, and I tend to believe that they are. But anyway, my dad, um, he had a friend who was going down there. She was an eye surgeon from California, and she was going down to Abidjania. Abidjania, that's a place in Brazil where he uh, he has his um, casa. And my mom had gone. My mom had gone twice. My mom is extremely um, spiritual. And she is the real leader, and she always was, in the family of all things health and wellness. My dad was like, you know, would follow behind her and just do what she said. Um, but my mom had gone down there, and when she got before John of God, um, he asked her to sit to his right and to meditate with him and to perform these psychic surgeries with him alongside him. Whoa. Because when he saw her, I guess he just felt her incredible energy. Um, and so my mom had a really amazing experience there and she, she loved it. And she saw for herself miracles happen. And so my dad had a friend that was going there, an eye surgeon from California. She brought his photos um, which this is going to sound super crazy, but you can have a remote surgery or you could when he was doing this. So they would bring your photos and the John of God would look at the photos and recommend what um, surgery you needed. And then they would say like, okay, on this date, you need to wear all white and um, the surgery is going to happen at this time. And you need to prepare to rest as though you had a real surgery. And you don't need any pork or pepper in the days leading up to it. All these different things. So anyway, I was w with my dad on Maui when he had his psychic surgery. And my dad was super excited. And the next day um, in the morning, I was asking him how it was. And he said, like, let's go for a walk and I'll tell you. And so we get outside and he just collapsed. And he was like, I, I, I'm so physically exhausted. I'm so like tired and um, I need to rest. And we get back up to the condo and he gets in bed and um, he calls his friend who was down there. And she said, Wayne, I told you, this is like a real surgery. You have to rest. And he stayed in bed for like a week, which he never did ever. I mean, that man never rested. Um, and then there was a psychic surgery where they do the suture removal. I know, again, it sounds super crazy, but um, the beans come in the night and they <laughs> remove the, the sutures, the um, stitches. And the next morning when my dad came out of his room, he had lost all this weight because he had been laying in bed for a week and barely eating. And uh, he came out, my brother and I, my brother Sands and I were in the living room and he came out and he looked at us and he put his arms out like, to give a big hug. And as he did that, his shorts completely like fell down. And I saw his like peeper and everything. I was like, dad, I don't want to see that. Like freaked out. He was like, what? Oh, sorry. He didn't realize he had lost so much weight. His pants were falling wow. off. But he, he didn't even notice his pants were falling off because he was in such a state of love, of, of actual love. And I mean, the, the energy that he carried after that, after that surgery, um, it carried with him for the rest of his life until he died. And he had a type of leukemia called CLL. It was chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And so there's no treatment that you do for. You don't do radiation or anything unless it turns acute. So he would have his blood monitored 
to make sure um, that it didn't turn acute. And after he passed away, I asked the um, autopsy doctor who called us with uh, to tell us that he died from a heart attack. Um, and she, we said, um, was there any leukemia in his blood? And she said, no, not a drop, not a single drop of leukemia anywhere in his blood. So then I said, I know this is going to sound really um, weird, but what was his colon like? Because he was obsessed with coffee enemas. <laughs> and she said, particularly clean and remarkable, actually. Now that you say that, I actually have a note here. That says, <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I knew he would want to know, and uh, or I knew that he would want us to know that all of his Starbucks, all of his uh, coffee enemas were worth it because um, he loved to torment us with, you know, yeah. best part of waking up is Folgers in your butt. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I asked. And anyway, um, yeah, he didn't have any leukemia and he credited it with the John of God psychic surgery. Wow. And how long before he went through that procedure was he diagnosed? Um, he was diagnosed, I want to say, gosh, I, I want to say 2009 was when he was diagnosed and um, just right around there. And he went through that procedure. I'm honestly, I'm not sure. 2012 or 13, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he changed his purpose at that point. He said that um, his only message from that point on would be to talk and teach about divine love. and. Um, and divine love is the love that our source, God, feels for each of us. And it's very different than human love. And he only wanted to talk about divine love. And I believe that was because whatever the John of God thing was, I know you said earlier, placebo or, or not, uh, it doesn't matter. He felt an infusion of divine love and he carried it from that point forward. So Because he bought into it, because he believed it, because it was real, who cares? The outcome was that he was a changed, loving, real... I mean, he was always loving, but this was like another level. Wow. Yeah. Wow, thank you for sharing that. I think most people listening to this podcast on a regular basis are well aware of the benefits of CBD for doing things like reducing inflammation, muscle recovery anti-anxiety, stress support, and of course, sleep support. In fact, I've been using CBD products for sleep for a number of years, and I found it to be one of the most effective things you can do. The problem is, is that the CBD market is very saturated and there's lots of noise, so it's tough to find a reliable product. That's why I'm behind Eaton Hemp, because their CBD is USDA certified organic. In fact, they were one of the first on the market to produce CBD in this way. And this is really important because the hemp plant is a phytoremediator which means it sucks up all the nutrients from the soil. Now, the problem with that is it also sucks up all of the toxins and heavy metals. So if your CBD is not grown organically, you're actually getting a concentrated shot of metals, pesticides, and any other junk that happens to be in the soil. And many people aren't even aware of this. Now, if it's organic, you get all the goodness of that clean soil. Eaton hemp CBD is minimally processed and infused with their own organic hemp seed oil grown on their farm in upstate New York. So I love this product. I use it every day. They have a really strong version that is absolutely incredible for sleep. If you're ready to check it out, it's super simple. Go to eatonhemp.com. That's E-A-T 
O-N-H-E-M-P, eatenhemp.com. And if you use the code Luke, you're going to save 20% off. That's Luke for 20% off at eatenhemp.com. Yeah, I've, I've always been enamored. Going back to Muktananda, the name I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. when I was about uh, eight or nine, I went to his ashram in Oakland with my mom. And so anytime I hear his name, I'm like, tell me more. I'm so fascinated by that because it was really impactful. And mm-hmm. um, throughout my life, I seem to be drawn, if not enamored with gurus that have powers, that have cities, you know, mm-hmm. that are able to do things that are outside of the realm of our linear mm-hmm. um material experience and what's so interesting about them including john of god and that was on my kind of vision board for many years i got to get down to brazil and i thought maybe he could fix my back and then when i saw videos of him like putting stethoscopes and or uh uh hemostats like down people's (laughs) throat and stuff i was like i don't know if i can handle that yeah with no with no numbing right yeah yeah but with with all of these and uh satya sai baba from india who i went to see in 2004 uh, who after he died, there were all these accusations of pedophilia. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's some of the stories are just horrific. And you're like, it's so hard to hold in mind those two realities. Like how can someone be bestowed with these gifts yet at the same time be capable of such wrongdoing and in some cases outright evil? Mm-hmm. And it's always been really interesting to me. And I think, I don't know, I I have to chalk it up to like kind of a fallen guru syndrome perhaps you know i don't know this to be true but it's 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 one way i've been able to reconcile it that perhaps um because one for whatever reason has these gifts and powers it's probably very tempting for the lower nature of oneself at a certain point unless you're very aware that the ego or that rapacious kind of the, the the animal instinctive drive to uh, overtake and mm-hmm. and dominate or pleasure seeking or whatever it might be that that's still present because you're still in an animal body right, right. so it's right. like it must be very seductive at a certain point for some mm-hmm. that have those gifts and are overtaken by urges that are so well, I won't say they're ungodly because God is everything including those ur- urges but that aren't that aren't right and aren't good and aren't of love. It's it's right. so fascinating to me, and it's been part of my na- na- uh, naivete as a spiritual student to understand that not just due to the fact that someone has been bestowed with these gifts does that mean that they're necessarily trustworthy or not capable of wrongdoing. Right, and it's I really think, interesting. No, I think so too, and I think that um, as as you were saying, the higher higher their awareness or the presence of I don't know, God becomes in someone. Um, I can imagine that the the war that they experience within themselves to remain attached to their human nature um, becomes bigger, becomes more present. So in other words, the, the more they rise, perhaps the more they reach to the bottom to, to I don't know, maintain some level of... Um, human human experience it takes i would imagine it would take somebody really christ consciousness level to be in a human body and not be impacted by that yeah 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting phenomenon mm-hmm. in in the human realm. I've just always been like, ah, oh, that's so weird. It's such it's but, such a contrast, you right. know. Right, but I think it's you know another way of looking at that is there's so many people that are in recovery that are that are former addicts or that are addicts that are in the spiritual community, and I think it's again it's they had a war within themselves. There was a part of them that was aware. There was always a part of them that was aware that um, they didn't need these substances for most people, for most addicts, um, myself being one of them, that we didn't need these substances. I didn't need alcohol to fix what I was feeling. Um, And I knew it wouldn't heal me or bring me closer to where I wanted to be. But even though I had that loving awareness, I still had my feet dragging on the ground. You know, I still had the human nature, which was um, to want to numb, avoid, punish, shame, hide, all those things. So I think, in other words, there's a lot of people that are in recovery that are in the spiritual community because, you know, they've, they've got one foot in each door. Yeah. Well, there's a gift in it too, you know, mm-hmm. when you've been down to the depths of hell. For some, I'm not for all, but I guess those of us that make it out, there's um, a level of uh, of empathy that's possible when you experience the suffering of others, mm-hmm. right? Because you <laughs> you remember. I mean, hopefully, we right. always remember, right? I I I do my best to remember those times in my life. I mean, not to dwell on them, but to keep me down to earth and humble. You know, right. that I, I'm feeling good, I have a great life, but it wasn't always this way. There was right. a time, but I love what you were alluding to there in that that still small voice that even when you're in the throes of something like addiction or any kind of other self-destructive behavior, that there still is that higher, higher self part of you. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was like toward the end there, what, before I got sober, it, it would in an uncomfortable way that I didn't want to happen, it would kind of nudge me and be like, Hey, there's another way Mm -hmm. you're better than this. You have potential, like, you don't have to live like this. And I was like, mm-hmm. shut up, shut up, shut up. Right. You know? Another drink, another drink. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and eventually, um, which I didn't realize until at least 22 years after the fact, but it, a mushroom journey that I had intended to be an escape, mm-hmm. a night, another night of party and just take whatever's around. Um, that voice became so loud that months following that, I elected to, uh, to put myself into treatment and, you know, been sober ever since 24 years later. Yeah. But it was, it was really like the sadness of my higher self and its potential letting me know that it was there and and that it was possible for me to actually have a real life and Mm -hmm. to do something with myself and make a contribution and not be someone who is, um, a detriment to those around me and right. myself, you know? Right. And the thing is, is that, um, you know, you probably thought that the mushrooms were um, needed to find that voice, but they were just a vehicle because the voice was always there. Um, and it's like, when, it you're, just, when you're already in Detroit, yeah, you don't yeah, have to take the totally. train to get there, you know? Well, it's true. The mushrooms yeah. that night, and again, this is like total hindsight wisdom, but it's just, it, it, caused that inner voice to scream so loudly that I right. couldn't ignore it. Yeah. There was no numbing it. It was like the stark reality of my situation and the truth about my imminent demise became so prevalent and obvious to me that I, there was just no ignoring it. I tried, mm-hmm. made it a few more months, just stuff it, stuff it, go dark, 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 mm-hmm. turn the lights out in any way possible. Um, but mm-hmm. then in the end, I just, 
yeah, I finally surrendered. But anyway, enough about me. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I want to talk about um, some of the challenges that you went through in the book. I mean, you and Sage, your sister, mm-hmm. your co-author, um, both illuminate in in a very vulnerable way uh, the the death of your stepson, the imminent uh, possible prison term of your husband mm-hmm. Matt. Um, were those and and your dad dying and it, within the same uh, short period had with your drinking problem did did that start before that did it creep up on you or were you, did you just break under the pressure and like grab the bottle because all that stuff was happening break under the pressure and grab the bottle because all that stuff was happening I'm sure I had a um actually it's not true I'm not sure I did not have an addictive tendency before that I didn't have an addictive tendency my entire life um I wasn't like an over sugar eater as a kid or anything like that. Um, but when, when everything in my life that, that I felt good about, that I felt like safe in, when it all kind of just got yanked out from under me, like when the, my dad died, um, my husband was indicted. Um, I had three babies in that time. So I gained a lot of weight. And I had weight to lose. So superficial level, but still we're all you know, we can, I could be very vain. Um, I didn't like the way I looked anymore. I didn't have any money because my husband's assets were frozen and, um, my dad had just died and there was a whole legal thing after his death. And so everything that I had identified as being part of my self-worth was gone. And then my stepson died and I, I didn't I didn't want to feel. I didn't want to experience what I was experiencing. I kept convincing myself that um, that when all the circumstances in my life like fall into place, then I'll stop drinking. Then I'll be at peace. Then I'll lose weight. Then I'll be happy. I was raised to know it's the opposite, that I will be at peace and then the circumstances fall into place. I was raised to know that, but I was consciously abandoning it um, because I didn't want to be responsible. I didn't want to have to do the work. It's a lot easier to look around you and blame and it be somebody else's fault or I am this way because this happened to me or I am having this behavior because I have this occurring. It's so much easier, but painful and longer um, to look outside of yourself and find a million reasons to justify why you're doing what you're doing. It's so much freer, more freeing, um, but harder to go within, to find the peace, to find, you know, the inner Tahiti. It's so much more freeing to find that inner Tahiti, even when everything in your life has shit the bed. But it takes, um, it takes a sense of being worth it. And I didn't have that. I was really um, just carrying a heavy coat of shame because after Mason passed away, um, my stepson, when my dad died, I didn't have any like regret. I didn't have any um, like lingering uh, grief in the form of like regret or pain because I had only had had a, like a beautiful relationship with him and he adored me and I adored him. And 
I felt like I basked in his love of me and I never had anything to regret. Um, when Mason died, I could not remember a single nice thing that I had done for him. I couldn't remember. And let me just say this. I had done them lots of nice things, but I was so, I was so consumed with guilt and shame over all of the mean things I had done, all of the uh, evil stepmother, if you will, shitty things I had done, all the little fights I had picked, um, that I couldn't, I couldn't let myself off the hook. So I was really committed to shame. And I started drinking in excess at that point, right, around, right after he passed away. I didn't want, not only did I not want to feel, I didn't want to be me. When you started drinking, was it, it so it was kind of a sudden thing? And were you more, and this is just curiosity as like, I guess a former alcoholic, I'm always a bit gray on that because i don't ever plan on having a drink, but I don't know what would happen if I did. I assume it would be bad. <laughs> um, but people that identify as alcoholics will kind of fall under a few different categories. But broadly speaking, you have kind of a maintenance drinker. My paternal grandfather was that way. I never knew him to be drunk, but I always knew him to have a drink and smell like booze. Mm -hmm. uh, I was uh, not like that. I really only drank after dark, but once I started, I couldn't stop and I drank into absolute oblivion almost every time. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's just how I rolled. I still drink like that. <laughs> like Allison is always, she always watches me when I drink anything because I'm just like, blah, 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 blah. I just chug any kind of drink. I've always been a chugger. Um, so, what what type of drinker were you, and how long did that period last? And did the way you drank speed up, you know, your awareness that you had a problem and your desire to get help, or however that happened? Yeah. So um, my my I always was like a casual drinker. I, casual meaning like I would have, I would, I like to cook a lot. So I would have wine while I was making dinner or my husband and I would go out to eat and I would have like an IPA because I love beer. Um, so I was really more like a wine and beer drinker, but it wasn't like I was blacking out. And once Mason passed away, I went from like, you know, having a glass of wine with dinner or two to having a bottle to having a bottle and a half um, and blacking out like every time I drank. Wow. So damn girl. Yeah, so I didn't drink every single night yeah. at first, but every time I drank, I blacked out. Got it. And then um, that really kind of peaked when COVID started. I had a period of time in there where I got pregnant and I was, so I wasn't doing that then. So I had a nice nine month and a half break. Um, but then after my son was born and I kind of slowly returned to the blackout phase, um, not not immediately, but slowly. And then um, and when COVID happened, actually, it was the start of last year. Uh, was that last year? Yeah, that was last March. I don't even know. Yeah. yeah, I think it was like last year. My kids were not in school. <laughs> and, um, and I had like a week where I had my nanny come every day because her, sh her other job, she, they, she couldn't go there. They didn't want her to come because of COVID. So um, suddenly she was available five days a week. And I didn't have to get up in the morning to take my kids to school. And I had somebody that was there that I trusted that was going to watch them. And I, each day I started drinking instead of it being five, it became four, it became three. And I just got blacked out for like five straight days. 
And um, my husband basically said that he was leaving me and oh, wow. taking our kids. Wow. Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. Good for him. I can say in hindsight. Yeah. At the time, yeah. I said every <laughs> yeah. nasty thing I could possibly I'm think sure. of. I'm sure. I'm um, sure. And I just said, I'll, I'll do what I have to do. I'll stop. Because I also had that same thing. I had that feeling that there was a voice inside of me that was saying, um, it doesn't have to be this way. You have a huge life ahead of you if you choose to show up for it. Um, so I had like the nudge, but I didn't even want, I was saying shut up to the nudge too. I was just telling it, I don't want any part of you. In fact, the more I would feel that nudge, the drunker I would become faster because I didn't even want to, um, I didn't want to connect with the idea that it was up to me to change. Yeah. Well, is it not fortunate that you had the upbringing that you had and such great teachers as parents that perhaps that nudge came sooner and louder than it does for some that the husband does leave, the mm -hmm. kids are gone, the career folds. I mean, the, you know, the nature of most people's bottoms by the time it gets bad enough where you're willing to <laughs> do what it takes to maintain sobriety uh, for, for most people, it gets pretty, pretty bad, mm -hmm. you know, and, and maybe those are people that had more traumatic childhoods and things like that, where there's just so much more heavy lifting and so much more to work through. Right. But it sounds like yours was a, a fortunate case and that you had a lot of the raw materials already built into your character and grew up with a lot of love right. and what I, I think was great caregiving, mm -hmm. um, especially in your book. I mean, there's so much in your book is like how to be a parent, you know, yeah. honestly, both the way you and your sister are parents, mm -hmm. but also as, as your parents parented you both, it's like, oh, okay, that's, that's how you do it. Yeah. See, so, so you're going to read it again when you're, when you're going to yeah, have no, one, Totally, right? totally. No, that's what I told Allison too, because we're both studying the book at the same time. You know, I said, man, there's a lot of great parenting lessons in here. Yeah. But do you, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I can get that to be a question. It's more of a, an assumption of mine, but do you think that your, your upbringing and the fact that you weren't terribly traumatized and had a really kind of safe emotional experience with your parents, that it helped you get to that point sooner and like, I'm going to knock this shit out and get back on track? No. Really? No, because I have a sister, I won't say her name, but I have a sister who is a 20 plus year addict. Mm. Um, she's been a heroin addict, a fentanyl addict, a um, every kind of addict that you could think of has gone to maybe 20 different rehabs and, um, and, and she had the exact same upbringing that I had. Wow. So I don't think that your parents can, can absolve you of any addictive tendencies. And I don't think that they can be to blame as much as we would like to think they are. I think that it's, it is a choice that we make in response to whatever trauma or experience we have. But when we look at other people's lives and we say, well, you know, they're this way because their parents did this or that, we're kind of taking the responsibility off of themselves. And the only freedom, the truest form of freedom is taking responsibility for everything that shows up in your life. Um, so that doesn't mean that because somebody had bad parents, they're not to blame, right? They're not... But it really does actually mean that they're not to blame because um, I don't think that I, I think I had a shorter experience with um, my alcoholism or addiction or whatever, because I don't think that it is actually my tendency to be 
an addict. I think that it was my way of responding to my trauma. Right, right. That and, makes sense. Yeah, and I think that for um, for other people, I'm sure that they that have had really bad parents, it's easy to say, not easy, but it's comfortable to say that I am this way because of what happened to me. And I'm not saying that that isn't valid, but at some point, you have to find the place within yourself that can heal yourself in order to no longer be tied to what happened to you. And if you continue to look at your parents or, or your upbringing as the people to blame, well, then they're always going to have all the power over your healing. Yeah, very true. Very mm -hmm. true. Well, congratulations on uh, escaping your demise. Thank you. I mean, especially having kids, you know, it's like you see the generational addiction stuff is so prevalent mm -hmm. um, that oftentimes when kids see their parents coping in that way, I mean, that's the way it was for me to some degree. The adults in my life were self-medicating uh, often in many cases. And so I looked around and that's what was modeled. And I said, well, that's how you deal with life. You know right. what I mean? Right. And also I think as you indicated, I was so obviously predisposed to just being obsessive, compulsive, addictive kind of personality. I mean, I still am. I'm still that way. I'm mm -hmm. just that way now with healthy things. You yeah. know what I mean? Which, but my dad was know. too. He was, really? a, he was a friend of Bill W. He was a, he was a former alcoholic. And oh, I um, didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, wow. He got sober when I was um, a little kid. So I have no memory or experience of him drinking. Um, he was never, as you were describing your grandfather, he was never, uh, he was more like your grandfather. He had his drinks, but he was never out of control or drunk. But, um, he got to a point where he realized that he was not drinking it. It was drinking him. And he stopped. And he uh, became a friend of Bill W. And so I also knew that this is going to sound like I'm totally blaming my dad. I'm not at all. But I also knew that he did that in his um, adulthood, that he had had little kids. And I think that there was some part of me that felt like I could, I could cope that way as well. Wow. Did his uh, sobriety have any uh, anything to do with that August 30th uh, date or when he when he found his dad's grave and had that forgiveness experience? No, he, he so he stopped um, his unhealthy shit at that time in the 1976. He stopped like, you know, eating. He smoked like a pack a day and he was super overweight and ate like McDonald's and drank a lot of soda. Um, like he stopped a lot of that, but he still had, uh, he liked Heineken. He still had his Heinekens. <laughs> I did too, actually. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. He it's still had his Heinekens in the evening. So he didn't, um, he didn't stop that until I want to say 1986. I was born in 85. So I was like maybe one or two. And uh, he had taken my mom and a bunch of us kids out to dinner and um, they got to favorite restaurant and my dad ordered his two beers right when he sat down because he liked to have two so he didn't have to wait for the second and smart um, yeah i like his style true true alcoholic and uh the uh, waitress said that the night before they had served a minor in the presence of a undercover police officer and they had their liquor license revoked and so my dad said all right let's go and he said we're not eating here and he made my mom or asked my mom and um to get back in the car with all of my little brothers and sisters and myself who were all little and in car seats and all that and um, drove to a, another restaurant 
where he knew he could have his beers. And he said he laid in bed that night and, um, and he felt so guilty that my mom, who had had all these little kids and didn't go out to dinner all that often, um, that my mom's time out was hampered because he had to have his booze, um, that he never touched it again. Wow. Mm-hmm. Damn. Powerful. Yeah. He, he had a great level of discipline. I, I struggled yeah. with that. Yeah. The, the power of love, though, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, whether yeah. it's for yourself or the people in your life, I think sometimes that's the one thread we're able to hang on to and find uh, just a crumb of willingness. You know what yeah. I mean? Oh, that's great. Wow. I did, I, for some reason, I didn't, I didn't know that about your dad. I must have missed that along the way. If you're someone that struggles with quality of sleep or duration of sleep, your problem might just be light leaking in and informing your brain that it's time to wake up, especially that pesky blue light that might sneak through the windows from streetlights outside or any devices you have plugged in in the room. Fact is, your body needs complete darkness if you want to get great sleep. Now, it's not always possible to adjust the room you're in so that it's completely blacked out. So this company called blueblocks.com has solved that problem by creating an incredible sleep mask called the Remedy Sleep Mask. Now, unlike other sleep masks on the market or one you might just pick up randomly on Amazon, this thing is 100% blackout. So it's like sleeping in pitch black darkness, which is what you want. It's also really soft on your face, very comfortable. You can also fully open your eyes while wearing the mask. So this is great people with long eyelashes and also apply zero pressure to the eyes, which I find to be really annoying. I don't want my eyes being smashed when I'm trying to sleep. It's made with super breathable fabric so you don't wake up with a hot and sweaty face. It also has adjustable eye cups so you can position them on your face for the perfect fit. Another thing that's really cool is it works for all sleeping styles. So if you sleep on your back, belly, or even on your side, it's flat on the side so it doesn't smash your face and ruin your sleep, which again is the whole point of this thing. So if you're looking for better sleep, if you're waking up frequently, if you're shifting around at night because some light is sneaking through, this can solve that problem. And not only is it good for sleep, I happen to like it a lot for taking a nap during the day or even for meditation which of course has many benefits, one of which being helping you sleep the following night. So the Remedy Sleep Mask from Blue Blocks is awesome. I highly recommend you check it out. Here's how you do so. Go to blueblocks.com slash lifestylist and use the code lifestylist to save 15%. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X, blueblocks.com slash lifestylist. Lifestylist is also the code for 15% off. I think there's a lot in your book that is so um, helpful around our perception of death mm-hmm. and, you know, your dad's teachings around death and that this is a round trip ticket. And he mm-hmm. seemed to throughout his life and his teachings have an awareness that this is not the end of the road for us, but a stop. Mm-hmm. And I think that was something you talked about a lot and did so beautifully. Um, one thing that I wanted to touch on was the sense that you had that your dad on some level knew that he was on his way out and some of those things that happened that were indicative of that knowing. Yeah, he, in hindsight, he did. He had some type of, I don't think it was conscious, I think it was some type of subconscious awareness. Um, For example, um, he had these plants that he was obsessed with. He loved his plants. And 
he had a lot of plans. And anytime he would go out of town, it would be like, you know, just the number of things that we had to do for the goddamn plants was like just insane. Like they couldn't be watered. They had to be waterfalled. So it meant like they had to be brought in the shower and showered basically because he wanted them to experience a waterfall. It was just, he just loved these plants. It's like, you know, his silliness. Uh, and he was getting ready to leave his condo on Maui and he was going to be leaving for August, September, October, November, because the entire condo building where he lived, the every single unit, everybody had to be out because they were replacing the pipes. So everybody had to be out. So he was going to be leaving his condo to go to Australia for a couple weeks, then come back to Maui, but go to a hotel. And then we were going to Europe and then back to a hotel. So he would not be in his condo for a while. So his assistant came with the bell cart. Um, to collect all of the plants because she was bringing them to her home to take care of them while he was gone for four months. And uh, as she gets there, he says to her, um, you know what, Dee? I don't need the plants. You can get rid of them. You can give them to somebody. And she said, what are you talking about? You love these plants. And he looked at her and he said, where I'm going, I'm not going to need them. And that was the last moment that he was in his home, in his condo, ever on Maui. He left then, got in the car, went to the airport, flew to Australia, did three weeks in Australia, came back to Maui, and then died two days after he got back to Maui in a hotel, in the hotel he was staying at. So the fact that he said that he didn't need his plants when he loved these plants, um, I would say that that's a little bit of a sign that he had a knowing. But another example would be that... Um, before he died, he had promised each of his children that he would pay for us to go to college or grad school. And he had always done that. So Sage is the youngest of eight. So Sage was just beginning her master's degree at NYU. And he had had a policy for all eight of his children, for all of our schooling, where at the beginning of the semester, he would give us, he would ask us to let him know the amount of money that it would be for our tuition, room and board, uh, health insurance, car insurance, that kind of thing. And he would pay for us for while we were in school. And so we would tell him the amount and we would pay for our own education from our own checking account. It was very important to him that we write the check to the institution so that we see how much money it really is. And to be able to budget, to learn how to budget yeah. your money, right? And we always did. And all of us always did budget, most of us. And um, Sage was starting her first semester of her master's degree at NYU. And NYU is very expensive and living in New York City is very expensive. So he sent her the check for whatever the amount was. And this was in January of 2015. So he died in August of 2015. So he gave her the money for that semester, for January to May. But after he sent her that, that amount of money, um, he called her back like a week later and he said, I'm going to send you the check for the remaining three semesters. And I want you to make sure that you budget that. And, you know, this is going to pay for your school. And she said, Dad, why? Like, why would you do that? I don't even want to have that amount of money. I don't feel good being responsible for that amount of money. Um, she felt nervous about it. And he said, because if something happens to me, I want to make sure that I upheld my promise to you that I would pay for you to finish all of your schooling. 
And because we were had a small lawsuit, not between family members, but with somebody else, after he passed away, that money for her schooling would not have been made available to her um, right away. And it was only because he had taken the steps to send her that check that um, she was able to finish on time. Wow. Mm-hmm. So interesting. I love the stories, I mean, that show that knowing, you know, mm-hmm. I find that fascinating. And then sometimes in the book, because it's you and Sage giving your accounts, I get confused about which one it was, yeah. but there were a couple other things along that line too. One of them was uh, a text about, to one of you, maybe it was to Sage, yeah. about uh, the um, the long eviction is about to be over and yeah. it's the end of phase one. Yes. Tell us about that. I thought that was really interesting yeah. as well. So he, um, he, as you said before, he talked about death. He looked forward to it in terms of having an awareness that this was a round trip ticket and that um, we all celebrate the first leg of that trip when, when somebody is born, but we don't often celebrate when that ticket is called. And when his mother passed away, and he was holding her ashes. Um, I remember him saying, surely, surely my mother is more than just this quiet dust. And, um, and so, so he, I don't want to say he looked forward to death, but it wasn't something that he feared. It was something that he just understood was part of the journey. And, um, he was in Australia with Sage and Sky and Sky's husband Mo, and um, he sent Sage and Sky a text that said, um, "I am looking forward to rest from this long eviction. Phase one is now complete." Um, and he often, because he talked about death, he would refer to this life as phase one. And so one time um, there was a documentary on about the death penalty. And uh, he was asked by um, one of our friends, would you rather have life in prison or um, the death penalty? And he said, I would rather have life in prison because there's always, always opportunity to grow, to grow our souls. And that when this phase is complete and we go to phase two, I want to know that I did everything to maximize my soul's growth. So he referred to the next part of life, the next journey as phase two. And he did that on more than one occasion, on a lot of occasions, actually. He would say, well, you know, when I'm done with my phase one. So when he said in the text, phase one is now complete, in that moment, Sky and Sage did not think that he was saying, my life is now coming to an end. They thought it was just a weird way for him to say, um, possibly phase one of the travel journey, because we were, you know, our family was going to Europe after Australia. And so there was a big travel thing coming up. And so they thought when he said this long eviction um, that maybe he just meant because he was out of his condo for a few months and the phase one being complete meant um, phase one of the travel leg. But in hindsight, you know, it seems like he had a knowing that phase one was indeed now complete. Another thing I find interesting uh, about your dad is that he sold gajillions of books. He must have been a wealthy guy and he was Mm -hmm. very altruistic. I mean, in the book, you talk about all of these different, you know, individual people that he anonymously just gave tons of money to. He helped out all the kids. He Mm -hmm. was 
definitely not someone that seemed materialistic or trying to hoard wealth, but I found it interesting that during that whole period on Maui, he lived in a condo when <laughs> he could have probably had a dope mansion. You he know what I mean? Have. Like, yeah, he could. Was have. he just kind of like low key and modest in that way? The yes, oh my God, he. Um, this is how he lived exorbitantly. If he had a window break in his Toyota, I mean, a uh, Volkswagen SUV, he had a Volkswagen SUV. If a window, there was a situation where one of the windows wouldn't come back up, he took it in that day and traded it in for a brand new one because he would never take the time to get it repaired. So he could just drop money like that on a new car, but he would never go to the Ferrari lot and get a Ferrari. It was like he used his money for convenience, but he was not a flashy, um, like, big spending guy. He despised conspicuous consumption. And actually, yeah, it was a thing when we were kids and I, I, you know, my sisters and I, we want, we grew up in Boca Raton. We wanted Louis Vuitton. We wanted the fancy, nice things. And he would just gag over it, but he would get it for us anyway. You know, he, but he would never buy that stuff for himself. But, um, yeah, yeah, he was a really low key guy. He lived in Birkenstocks uh, Lululemon bathing shorts and free t-shirts, like t-shirts that people would send him with like his quotes on them. <laughs> that was like, that's funny. Yeah. I was wondering about that in the book. I mean, I kind of a- assumed that, you know, but I'm looking at myself and I like to think of myself as like, Oh, I'm not caught up in materialism, but if I sold that many books, my ass would have a mountain. In Maui, <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, I yeah. found that to be interesting. And then there was another story along those same lines. Um, I think it was, maybe after he'd gotten back from Australia with Sage and Sky, it was maybe your last contact with him, mm-hmm. on a phone call. And mm-hmm. he just, he said, I really, 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 really love you. And that yeah. struck you as being a bit extra too, to the point of him yeah. having a sense some somewhere inside. What was that about? Yeah, he, it was the last time I ever spoke with him. And um, God, that just reminded me, the last time I saw him in person, uh, he cried when we said goodbye. I just remembered that when you said that. Um, but anyway, uh, the last time I spoke with him was the day before he died. He died on the 30th. I spoke with him on the 29th and um, just catching up. How are you doing? How are you feeling being back in Maui? And he said that he was getting ready to go for a swim in the ocean. And he had been told by like a healer in Canada, like an older Indian man, that if he ever swims in the ocean again, he's going to die. And he thought that and he had started to develop a fear while he was swimming in the ocean. He and I, we all thought that that meant um, he would like get eaten by a shark or, you know, drowned or something like that. Um, so for a while, he did not swim in the, in the ocean. He stopped swimming in the ocean, even though he used to do it every day. And it wasn't because somebody told him that. It was because what they told him resonated with himself as something he also felt. And anyway, um, he said to me, I'm looking at the ocean and it looks so good. I think I'm going to go for a swim. And I said, what about what that guy said though? And he said, if it's my time, it's my time. And I'm at peace with it. Um, and then he said, uh, anyway, before we go, I want you to know something. I want you to promise me that you'll always look after your sister, one of my sisters. And I said, yeah, I will. And he said, I want you to always make sure that you look out for her, Serena. And I said, I will. And then he said, um, and I want you to know that I love you. I really, 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 really love you. And it gave me pause because he was 
a very loving, emotional father. But to say it so many times did seem extra. And um, in hindsight, again, I think he, he must have known that he was getting ready to depart that night. So, wow. Wow. yeah, that was the last time I ever talked to him. And what was it like? You know, I've not, I've not had anyone that I'm really close to in my family uh, pass away, mm-hmm. and it's 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 one of my fears because it's you know my parents are getting older, and it's just, God, it seems so hard to face. But mm-hmm. it seems like you, perhaps because of your relationship with death and the way that your dad perceived death, and your, I guess, psychological framework or understanding of it, it seems like you just kind of leaned into it to the point where you very shortly after listened to your dad's podcast. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, I just like, how do you even, how do you not just melt down? You know, what was it like to hear your dad's voice when he's there one moment and and not the other? What was that like for you in terms of your reconciliation or healing? Okay. So I was on the phone when it was discovered that he died. I was on the phone with his assistant when she finally broke into his hotel room and with security and uh, found his body. And I experienced that live, that, oh no, Wayne, no, and that screaming. And um, and I didn't cry when that happened, when that was happening. Everybody that I was with started crying, um, but I was on the phone and I did not. And I think it was because I was having one of those really surreal moments where I was like, I know that this is happening, but I'm not actually in my body experiencing it. Um, Later that night when I got home and I was alone for the first time, I just started sobbing. And I just kept saying, I can't believe you pulled it off. That was the thought going through my head. Because my dad was so dramatic and talked about, you know, when I'm not here, when I'm an old man. And and um, that just seemed like an impossibility to me because he was so larger than life my whole life. And... I knew that he talked about death. I knew it was something that he, you know, slightly looked forward to and it didn't seem like it could be real. And so I just kept saying, I can't believe you pulled it off. I can't believe you pulled it off. And then I was just really upset. And um, I felt like I heard him say, listen to my podcast. And um, I was asking him for a sign. I was like, if everything that you taught is real, if all of this is actually real, then I need like a big fucking sign. Like I need like light bulbs to start exploding, like like at the very least lights flickering, like something to let me know that what you taught was real and that you are still here. And um, And nothing happened. Nothing was happening. And I was like, you better give me a sign. And I heard him or I felt him something say, listen to his podcast. And excuse me, I didn't even know that I had an app on my phone called Podcast. I had never listened to his podcast before, ever. And I, you know, when you pull down your phone, you can like search. So I just searched podcast. That app came up. So I was like, I have a sweet little app here. I opened it. I typed in Wayne Dyer and I clicked play on the first one that came up. And when I did, I felt, I felt comforted to hear his voice, but I felt like it was a very poignant acute, painful reminder that I was not going to hear it again in the way that I knew it. Um, I did not know him as a recording. I did not know him as a podcast host. I knew him as my dad. And so it was a, it was almost like more painful. And um, I just felt enormously sad and 
it was comforting to think like I have all these hours of recordings I could fall back on. But anyway, um, just as I was about to like, it, the podcast was like 15 minutes. And just as I was about to end it, he said on the podcast, now, if everyone listening could take a moment and send my daughter Serena some love because she is going through a hard time, I would really appreciate that. And then it ended. And I was just like, what? <laughs> like, wow. You're here. You're real. It's real. What you taught is real. I know that that was the sign that um, that you were telling me that my relationship with you doesn't have to end just because you're not in your physical body. It can just change. It can transform. And love does. It does cross all boundaries, all realms, all physical limitations. And when I think of him in that place, in that space, from that energy of love, I do feel him. Absolutely, I do. Wow. So incredible. Mm -hmm. I love those kind of stories. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's so many of them in your book, too. It's just, uh, that's one of the things that made it really juicy to me is because I'm always just looking for those signs, even if they happen for someone else. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, okay, cool. I'll keep going. I'll keep going. You yeah. know, this, this is real. Our, each of our individual experiences of spirituality and consciousness are real. And even if you yeah. witness it in someone else, right? It's like, okay, right. more proof. And you don't have to have Wayne Dyer as a dad to experience it. I had an incredible sign from my stepson, Mason, um, just maybe the most confirmation I've ever had in my life when my husband was sentenced to seven years in prison and Mason had just died like two months before that. And my husband said bye to the girls and he and I flew to New Orleans because that was the biggest major airport near the prison in Pensacola where he was going. And so he and I flew to New Orleans after saying bye to the girls, after having just said goodbye to his son. And um, we rented a car and we were getting lost. And he was like, let's just stop and get some get something to eat while we're in New Orleans before we drive this miserable place. So we did. It was January 11th of 2018. We stopped and um, well, we, we were going to stop somewhere in New Orleans, but we kept getting lost. And we kept going down like New Orleans has a lot of one ways and we just kept getting lost. So he said, let's just pull into this Harris Casino, this valet area, this Harris Casino, and let's just walk somewhere because it, we were so distracted by what we were going to do that um, we couldn't find a place to eat on our phones. And so we pull into this valet area and I open the passenger door to get out. And as I do that, a car, a Mercedes comes flying into the valet area where I'm like standing, where I'm getting out of the car so fast that I thought they were going to like hit me. I kind of jumped back and I like looked at my husband and I was like, do you believe this asshole? Like this. And he said, hold on, hold on. It's my attorney calling. And, um, and so I was like, okay. So I look back at the car and on the front license plate of this car in this exact moment, it says danger on the license plate and there's a license plate frame. And I, I obviously took a picture. Um, it says the frame on the plate says Mason on the top, let there be light on the bottom. And I was like, Oh my God, Matt, you, you have to come see this. And he said, hold on, hold on my attorney. And I was getting my phone out to take a picture. And then he said, Oh my God. And I could see that he just started like sobbing. And I had I had gotten so used to getting bad news on phone calls that I thought something bad happened again, um, that I, my stomach dropped and he just started shaking and crying. And he said, um, 
I said, what, 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 what's, what's happening? He said, the prosecution who tried our case, they just filed a motion today admitting that they lied and withheld evidence during the trial. The judge stayed the prison sentence. I'm not going in. I'm going home. And I said to him, it was Mason. It was Mason. In the moment, in the exact moment, you got that call. I mean, first, let me just say, I sobbed and jumped up and down, and I didn't just say this right away, but after some ecstatic celebrating, I said, it was Mason. In the moment you got that call, there was a license plate that pulled up right in front of me, so close I could not ignore it. And it was Mason, let there be light surrounding the danger. I mean, that is a sign that That's you can't ignore. crazy. Yeah. I'm so glad you told that story because that was one that was in my notes that I love from the book. Mm-hmm. I like the ones that are just pretty irrefutable. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like my Ram Das thing yesterday, I am loving awareness. I'm like, what? Yeah. How is that even possible uh, in the in the linear realm? It's just, there's something else there. Yeah. It's the knowing. <laughs> um, oh man, there's a ton of other things I want to discuss with you here. Let me find the ones that we have time for that are my very favorite things. I think I'd like to talk about in the last few minutes here, some of the teachings that you've integrated into your life. In the book, you talk a lot about meditation Mm -hmm. and how it, for one, I mean, not only has benefited your life and your well-being, but how you believed it helped you get pregnant. Oh my gosh. Yes. On Kauai. Yes. I had an incredible, another one of those things that it's just impossible to ignore. Um, you know, you're a guy, so not to be too graphic, but I didn't have a period for a long time before I got married. I wasn't having one for whatever reason, and you can't get pregnant without one. And so, um, right after my husband and I were married, we went to Kauai for our honeymoon. And I had read that Kauai for ancient Hawaiian tradition, um, or folklore, Kauai is the birthplace of all of civilization. So it's a considered a very fertile place to go. And when we landed there, I got into the Uber with my husband and I immediately asked the Uber driver, um, have you heard about this like really fertile part of Kauai where you can go to like some waterfall and apparently like everybody gets pregnant? And he was like, yeah, uh, I am uh, like fifth generation. Like his whole family was from Kauai. He was like actually like native. And he said, um, I know exactly what it is and what you're talking about, but it would take you two weeks to hike there. And I was just like, oh God, we don't have time. And I would never survive a hike like that. I'm super not athletic. But anyway, so he said, um, but there's an offshoot of it. There's another hike that you can do that will take about eight hours round trip. Really dangerous, really treacherous, but it is a direct offshoot. This You hike to this waterfall and that is kind of like the big one flows into this one. So you can get to the smaller one. And the last thing I wanted to do on my honeymoon was go exercise or go for a hike. I wanted to like lay at the pool and have margaritas, you know, like I didn't want to do that, but we did. And, um, we did this insane hike and it took a lot. Uh, and I was very scared because it was very steep, but anyway, we get there and, um, I got to this rock at this waterfall and I meditated. I, before I, before I went into the meditation, I asked God, if um, if I could please get pregnant and if it could p- please be a girl. <laughs> and 
that she'd be healthy. And I listed all these things, beautiful and creative and all these different things that I wanted her to be. And, um, and then I meditated. And then when we left that waterfall, we went to a friend's house that was right there that we had never met before, but they were friends of friends. And when we told them that we were going to Kauai, they said, you have to connect with this couple. So we connected with them. We went to their house and um, met them for the first time. And Roberta and Gordon Haas are their names. And Gordon um, looked at me out of the blue when we're sitting at his house. And I just met him. And he said, if you were to get pregnant today with a girl, what would you name her? And I said, "Um, I would name her Sailor. And I've never asked my husband if he likes that name, but that's what I would name her. And he said, "Uh, I think you're going to get pregnant today. And I was like, really? Like, how do you even know we're going to like hook up today? Like, I mean, <laughs> and I remember thinking like, okay, like I didn't even know what to say. And, um, and he said, I wrote children's books in the seventies. I'm going to, I'm going to give you some. So he takes out this box set of children's books called the Courtney Flower book series. And he, um, he signs one to Sailor Love Gordon, July 19th, 2014. And obviously I, forced my husband. I didn't have to force him, but we, we hooked up that day because just in case he was right. But I, I knew there was no possibility because I was, still was not having a regular cycle. And so anyway, we get back from our honeymoon and, um, and I'm just feeling really unwell. And my friend is saying, you just take a pregnancy test. You never know. And I was like, I don't want to do that to myself because I had never taken one before in my life. I didn't think that there was any possibility that um, I was pregnant. And I didn't want to have that feeling of like a reminder that I'm having a fertility issue or I'm having a lack of cycle issue. But I did because she was so adamant and it was positive. And so I called my OBGYN and I asked um, to make an appointment and they said, when was the first day of your last period? And I said, I don't know. I haven't had one in like nine months. And they were like, well, then you need to come in this week. And so I went in and they the first measurement that they take of the embryo is the most accurate because before the genetics kick in, like, you know, you're a tall guy. Um, so your baby could end up being taller, but, and if you're a smaller person, your baby could end up being smaller. But before all of that takes over, the the first couple of measurements are the most accurate because we all kind of start out the same. And so they said, well, we know we can't give you a due date based off of your cycle or when you conceived, but we can give you a due date based off of the measurements that we took. And we can give you a conception date based off of the measurements that we took. And I said, okay, great. And they said, your baby was conceived July 19th, 2014. And when we got home, I kept thinking, I'm I'm like 99% sure that's the date that we were at Gordon's. And I pulled out the the children's book and, um, and it was, it was the day that he said. And when I opened the children's book, it opened to a page in the book that said, meditation brings a miracle. And wow, I, yeah, and I felt like, well, here comes my miracle. And Sailor, Sailor, oh I found out she was a girl um, in October. And right after I found out that she was a girl, uh, my mutual friend, Eric Handler, called and said that Gordon had passed. And on the same day that I found out that she was a girl, and I felt like somehow he saw my baby coming, maybe because he was on his way out. And he knew she was on her way in. Wow. Somehow. Wow. Yeah. What is it that you say in the book about coincidence? I don't know if it's something you wrote or if you quoted your dad, mm-hmm. but people's kind of misconception of what coincidence is. Yeah. We think of a coincidence as like a random happening. 
But the word coincidence comes from the mathematical term when two angles fit together perfectly, they're said to coincide. So we've taken something that means um, two things fitting together perfectly, and we've reinterpreted it to mean two things that happen by accident or by woo-woo magic. Um, but in a universe where all is in perfect order, there are no such things as accidents or coincidences. It's all just God's perfection. It's all just the, the perfection of all of us, even, even those of us, even those people that we don't think has any in them, even those situations and circumstances that we think have nothing good in them. There's still God's perfection there. And if I can say that after losing my stepson, um, who was like my, who became like my son, um, if I can say that even in that, it was not an accident, that it was, it was God's perfection, even in the loss of a child, to an accidental drug overdose. So if there was ever an opportunity or a reason to say that this is a universe of accidents, that would be it. But now I know that, um, that Mason's life and his death were part of the perfect order of things. And just because I don't understand why it had to be that way now doesn't mean I won't one day. Wow, beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing all this today. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm so glad we got to do this. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Thank you. I, I find it really fun to dive into someone's book and then get to kind of relive it in <laughs> mm -hmm. person. It's such a gift. So thank you for sharing time with me today. Yeah, thank you for sharing time with me. Sorry that I talked so much. My mouth is dry. I drank all my tea. No, I, I love it. I love it. You could talk all day. This is so inspiring. Thank you. Yeah, thank you've you. definitely inherited your your pop's gift for, for inspiration and finding the magic. It's really cool. I, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm like feeling into your, to your dad more, yeah. you know, not that you're not your own person. And right. obviously like you have your own teachings and your breadth of experience that are so valuable, but there is a certain air of like positivity, right? Mm -hmm. And optimism, I think that was just so inherent in your dad's attitude that really comes through. Yes. And let me just say this, because you said that this is a book that has a lot to do with parenting. That is the, what you just said of how, you know, my dad and his positivity and his optimism come through. That is because what we are doing with our lives is so loud that our children don't hear what we're saying. So my dad lived that. He lived that example of um of joy and and positivity and and love. And it wasn't just something that he said. It was something that he lived. And so how could I be any other way? But I was. I was another way. I lost that connection for a little while, but um, at least I'm finding it again. And, and I guess the reason I say that is because it's available for everybody, for anybody to, to find that part of them that um, is loving awareness. Hot damn. <laughs>
<laughs> great, great ending point. Mic drop, boom. Uh, who have been three teachers? I mean, obviously your dad, but who have been three other teachers or teachings that have influenced your work that you might share with us? Alcohol um, has been a big teacher for me. Do you mean people are going to be like anything? Okay. No, I love that. I'm okay. like, how did no one say that before in almost 400 episodes? <laughs> yeah, alcohol. Um, Mason, my stepson, and my mom, Marceline. Because if you want to have a, like a real biohacking, youthful life, I mean, you should see this woman. She's 70. She had seven children, all natural, all natural childbirths, breastfed all of us till we were two. And she looks like she's younger than me. I mean, she is incredible. She's just the biohacking queen. So, um, but yeah, alcohol, Mason, and my mom have been three really big teachers. I got to ask you one more question. Yeah. I forgot in regard to your parents. And we talk so much about your dad. I'm like, there's actually a lot of great stuff about your mom in your book too. So let's give her another shout out. Mm -hmm. What I found really interesting was that your parents were going to get divorced, which I'm sure was not fun for any of you kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then they separated. Then they elected to actually stay married. Yeah. And I always (laughs) want, you didn't really answer this part in the book. I'm like, how did that work when they got into new relationships? Yeah. Well, my mom was already in a new relationship when they, and she's been with the same man, Tony. He's a wonderful guy. He's an acupuncturist. Um, Excuse me. She's been in that relationship with Tony and was in a relationship with him when they decided to stay married. So imagine what, you know, what that was like. I'm sure it wasn't great between my mom and Tony, but I wasn't privy to it. So I don't know. I couldn't tell you, but, um, yeah, they were going to have a, they were going to get divorced and they were having like a lot of angry, bitter fights and suddenly money was a topic and there was just resentment, bitter resentment. And in that time, my dad became extremely depressed and, um, and was just, I don't know, I want to say like just really struggling to like apply his own work to his life now that he was experiencing a difficult situation that was outside of his control. His wife was leaving him. That was it. And, um, and he wrote The Power of Intention during that depression, in the midst of that depression. In fact, writing that book is what pulled him out of it. Wow. Yeah. Pressure makes the diamond. Yeah. And a lot of people, I think, don't realize that he wrote that book, which became the second biggest seller of his after Euronius owns, then it was power of intention. And again, it was uh, during a time of deep despair for him where he was really having to do the work for himself, himself again. And anyway, um, after they wrote, after he wrote that book and he was like on a speaking tour and he was no longer in his depression, um, they decided that they didn't need to get divorced and that they didn't need to split up money and that they didn't need to have attorneys tell them um, what they already knew, which was that they wanted to stay friends, but they didn't want to stay married. And so they stayed married and became really good friends. Wow. And, um, and they recommitted to each other through love. And I have to tell you this, my parents' relationship became closer and better and stronger afterward. In fact, so much so that they spoke on the phone. There was no person that my dad talked to on the phone more than my mom and vice versa. They became each other's truest best friends and had a love for each other that was um, just what what we all we all should aspire to have, you know? 
Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I'm yeah. glad I remembered that. That was one thing in the book. I'm like, how does that work? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? But I mean, it's it's very aspirational, right? I mean, one could hope it, when we're when we're in love with someone, right? Pre-breakup, it's like, we're going to be friends forever. I mean, don't we all right. say that, right. right? You know, if anything ever happens, let's promise we'll be. <laughs> and it's like, well, people change, people grow, people, some people don't grow, et cetera. Uh, and then, you know, it's not that often that that's the case, you know, yeah, or or that as people enter into new relationships, that that's still healthy and feasible in right. any way. So I think that's what caught me too. I can't imagine ever not being with my beloved Allison, but if we did, like, I I can't be Tony. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. it takes a special yeah. person to be Tony. I yeah. could not be Tony either. Yeah. Um. In fact, that I that acupuncture is working miracles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's they're all incredible. And yeah. that's because like attracts like. Yeah, elevated, elevated uh way to handle that. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. Uh where can people find you? Any social media, website, book, anything you want to plug here at the end? Well, uh, the knowing. Um, so thank you for graciously having the book on display like I this. I always have the books here yeah, in the videos. But it's still fun when it's mine. It is, yeah. More, so, more sometimes fun. I, it's like a cheat sheet too. I'll be like, oh, I, I want to read this one right. page or something. Yeah. Um, but it, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and all of the, um, I, I don't know if I'm on Twitter, but all of the normal social media things, Serena Dyer or Serena Dyer Pisoni, like my name is on the book. It's my married name. Okay. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining myself and Serena for this conversation. This was a real treat for me, not only because I'm such a huge fan of Wayne Dyer's work, but also to really see the contrast of the spiritual lessons that Serena and her siblings were able to learn growing up in what I would perceive to be a totally ideal conscious, awake, spiritual household. I think it's really interesting that she and I shared so many of the lessons and struggles along the way, even though my childhood experience was in such stark contrast to her. So it just goes to show that uh, we all come here with a karmic uh, plan and lessons to learn, and that sometimes our environment doesn't necessarily indicate an easy path or an easy life. So it was just really inspiring for me to sit down and have this chat with her. And she's just so cool. I mean, we just vibed and just had a great time. And so it was meaningful to me on a lot of levels. And uh, I'm hoping that it was for you as well. And chances are, if you got to the end of the episode and you're hearing my voice now, you enjoyed the conversation. And uh, as always, if you did, uh, please feel free to share it with some friends. That's really the best way you can support the Lifestylist podcast. I'd also like to invite you to join me next week for episode 368. It's a bit of a departure from this feel-good love fest of a conversation we shared today. It's called Not Just for Sleep, Melatonin, the Master Molecule and Next Level Biohacks with my friend, Dr. John Lawrence. Every once in a while, I interview someone and we end up becoming buds. And that was the case with uh, Dr. John. This guy's just, he's just the coolest guy. And he's on just another level of understanding when it comes to natural healing and alternative medicine and um, his products at mitozen.com slash luke are just incredible i mean i'm like how did i even live without knowing about these Uh, i was introduced to um, dr john i don't even think anyone calls him that because dr john always reminds me of one of my favorite singers musicians dr john from new orleans 
Anywho, uh, Dr. John was introduced to me by Ben Greenfield. I heard him on Ben's show and I was like, oh my God, I got to interview this guy. He's just uh, on some next level stuff. And uh, Ben was kind enough to introduce us and now we've become uh, great friends. And he's been um, just a real solid support system in my life and someone that I'm learning so much from. So I'm really excited to share next week's episode with you as that conversation goes into much more than sleep and melatonin. I mean, we really cover some ground there. So make sure to tune in next week and learn about some very, very cutting edge supplementation routines and just a, a very different way to think about health. I'd also like to invite you to join me on my Telegram channel for uncensored content about current world affairs. There are many uh, news feeds and memes and thoughts that I feel called to share in the current dire state we find ourselves in as a species here on planet Earth. And uh, I'm unable to do that on the censored, more uh, fascistic platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, let alone on this podcast, uh, which is hosted, of course, at Apple. So uh, I just couldn't keep this information in, so I went ahead and started a Telegram channel, which seems to be a relatively safe place to post the forbidden ideas. You know, how dare we ask questions about current affairs, right? We're supposed to just fall in line and do what the news tells us, just sit in front of the TV and just go, okay, I do what the TV says, follow the science. Well, there's a lot of science out there. Uh, the only problem is much of it is suppressed. So uh, here's what you do. You download the Telegram app. It's free. If you don't already have it, once you have the app, you can go to lukestory.com slash telegram. That's lukestory.com slash telegram. And that link will take you directly to my Telegram channel. Uh, it's not for the faint at heart. So if you want to stick with the positive, feel-good message of this podcast and my other social media channels, uh, don't say I didn't warn you. There's some pretty alarming material on that channel. But uh, again, there are things that I feel just need to be said. I mean, if if there's a hill we're going to die on, uh, this is the hill. <laughs> so uh, that's where you'll find me there again at lukestory.com slash telegram. That said, despite the doom and gloom that you'll find uh, there on that channel, uh, I want to just encourage everyone to not lose faith and lose hope because humanity always prevails. And I truly believe that uh, humanity as a whole is on its way up the scale of consciousness. And as dark and scary as things can be when you look at a place like Australia or Canada and um, even the United States and really all over the world in some places worse than others, it seems to be at times that the forces of darkness and evil uh, are taking over. It's my understanding and perspective that these forces have really always been at play. They've just always been kind of hidden and lurking in the shadows and throughout history have emerged with the face of a totalitarian leader or dictator. And at this time, we don't have just one face. It's sort of a worldwide shadowy conglomerate of human entities that have positioned themselves into uh, levels of high power and influence and for whatever reason are motivated to subjugate, exploit, and control uh, vast swaths of humanity. And I'm one that truly believes in personal freedom, liberation, and the pursuit of happiness. And so uh, I believe that uh, what we're seeing now is just really the crumbling of an old paradigm. And if we can 
Find ways to stay out of the fear and the condemnation and the hate and anger and resentment and really just work on elevating our individual consciousness one by one that uh, that consciousness will continue to rise above and these old structures will, however slowly, begin to crumble as we build new structures for uh, cultures and societies of equanimity and fairness, transparency, honesty, and freedom. So that's that's what I'm about, and I can kind of talk about those things, but I can't necessarily point to uh, some of the issues that we're facing. So that's why I started that channel, and uh, hope that you enjoy it. If you decide to venture over there, just put on your big boy and big girl pants and um, get ready for some pretty harsh red pills. And with that, my friends, I'm going to bid you farewell. Thank you for supporting the show and our sponsors, Beekeepers Naturals, Eaton Hemp, and Blue Blocks. I love the brands that I work with. I use all of their products, legit, like every day, actually. Actually, you know what? I think I'm out of my Beekeepers Naturals right at the moment of this recording, which reminds me I need to email them and see if I can mooch some product off them. But I got my Eaton Hemp here. I've got a couple Blue Blocks products in the house that I'm using. So I'm very uh, grateful for all of these brands that support the show. And I'm grateful for those of you that find value in those brands and you know, in a perfect world, I wouldn't have to have any advertising on this show. But the fact is, uh, it costs a lot of money to produce the show and to allow me the time to do the work that I do to keep it going with consistency and hopefully as high value as possible. So thank you very much. Keep the faith. And I'll be back next week for episode 368 with Dr. John Lawrence. Mm-hmm.